Hello and welcome. I'm Abraham Lee for BSF San Francisco, and today we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, where the disciples came to Jesus asking a question that we all have entertained at some point in our lives, whether at work or about school or in our social groups. We ask, who's the most powerful? Who's the boss? Who's in charge? Who are the leaders and who are the followers? And how can I be possibly one of them? Do I have what it takes to be the greatest? What does it take? What do I have to do to get to the top? To be the greatest that everybody else looks up to? It's a worldly way of looking at things, but Jesus once again teaches us that living into the kingdom of God is counterintuitive and totally opposite to what man's intuition and man's desires lead him. So let's begin. It's not surprising that 12 disciples, who are all men, have been with Jesus and have enjoyed being members of Jesus' inner circle, having the privilege of God's empowerment to heal and exercise demon-possessed people, participate in incredible miracles, and witness wonders, are now feeling a little puffed up about their place and their role in God's or in Jesus' inner circle. So people have started to look at them Uh, The people that are crowding about, the thousands of people that are coming to see Jesus, are starting to look at them as important access points to Jesus. As we saw in the previous chapters with people seeking an audience with Jesus to make their personal request, these disciples, they know that they're they're quite special, uh, being close to Jesus. The disciples must have felt quite important to have had such a special connection to the one person everybody wanted to get close to and see. So it comes as no surprise a spirit of ambition and interest and status arises in them. And this issue continues all the way into chapter 20. A little later on we'll be looking at that, but let me just remind you if you have read through Matthew before, that the mother of Zebedee's sons, uh, James and John, who were part of the Uh, the small group that went up to the mountain to see Jesus being transfigured. So James and John, the mother, comes and approaches Jesus and asks that her two sons be allowed to sit to Jesus's right and left in the kingdom. Of course, the other disciples were indignant because they probably had their own desires to be at the top of this growing movement that they were a part of. How much the Lord puts up with us in our carnality? How much the Lord, you read this and you're thinking, wow, how patient and how gracious the Lord is to put up with our worldly notions of being the greatest, being the best. Do you get a sense of their mistaken ideas of status, prestige, power, and authority? And how much the Lord must patiently put up with their self-aggrandizing, opportunistic hearts. They are still seeking with the worldly mindset. And and who knows what they were thinking about the kingdom of God and the kind of hierarchy that they were looking at that, which probably reflected much of the world and not the kingdom that Jesus wanted us to be learning about from his heart. So Jesus uses this opportunity as a teaching moment a really needful teaching moment in a way so to counteract their false notions of the kingdom of God with a counterintuitive teaching 
about who is the greatest, truly who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And then he calls before them in trying to teach with an illustration a child. So in this chapter we see two divisions as we look upon this illustration that Jesus uses to teach us of the dominion of the king. But first let me introduce the verse for this week to focus on and anchor our thoughts. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 3. And the big idea for us to focus on here is that God's people must aspire, must uh, aspire or kind of uh, plan and uh, wrap our thinking around the kingdom of God with a heart that is humble like that of a child. So God's people must aspire for a humble heart like a child's. And the aim is that our humble heart attitude is the basis for kingdom relationship with others. The reason why we aspire for this is that the humble heart attitude is the basis for the kingdom relationship with others. And so the two divisions we see, the first one is the kingdom greatness is in childlike humility, we find from verses one through six. And then through the rest of the chapter, verses seven through 35, we see the kingdom greatness is having Jesus's heart for others. It's reflecting and imitating Jesus' heart for others. <clears throat> so what did Jesus say was necessary to enter the kingdom of God? And he says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And why a child? Why is a child used as an image of who is truly great in that kingdom? Well, a child is the humblest time a person will ever be. A child is ready to receive and to learn and to appreciate and to believe. See, a young child doesn't know nor care for worldly aspirations to be seen or to reach positions of power or to elevate one's status, or to aspire for privileges and benefits and authority over other people, to be in charge and commanding over others. A child recognizes his or her helplessness and utter dependence on their parents. They find their peace and security in the parents' arms. They are delighted by their parents' affection and love, and that bond is the most important thing by which the child grows and is happy and experiences joy. They grow healthy and strong and mature and learn to share their life and love with others by that sense of security and affection to their parents. In another sense, we are like that in when we become born again. God teaches us through the image of being born again that we must awaken into a whole new perspective guided by the Holy Spirit as he gives us a new spirit in Christ as his people. As a child, a person who is born again awakens into God's world with new and fresh eyes. We are reborn, and in the spirit must walk dependent on our heavenly parent, our Father who is in heaven. A child is always looking to his parents for answers to their questions, for direction and for guidance. And likewise, a child always shows trust and faith in the parent's goodwill. Children are easily believing and trusting, easy to please, readily showing simple appreciation, transparent, 
with no ulterior motives, simple in their view of justice, really confident in their idea of what is right and wrong, strongly sensitive to the abhorrent and the vile, readily in agreement with what is right and fair, and unobscured by their ambition or greed or title or status, because they have none. They don't know about those things. Their perspective on, or this perspective on who is the greatest, doesn't make too much sense to anyone who is really invested in the world and the world's prerogatives. Because they have to have the sense, the world, what the world teaches is important, like the sense of promotion and self-advancement and getting ahead. So people of the world ask, you know, in Jesus' view, uh, where does the role, what is the role of strength and agility and intelligence and fitness? How, are, how about the ability to outwit, outlast, and outplay other people? What about social skills and the ability to win friends and influence people? Will none of this come into play in God's kingdom? Into what Jesus describes, into the next verses of this passage, we learn, yes, none. Because they obstruct into the ways in which we are to interact with one another in love as Jesus teaches us to imbibe into. First of all, in what ways is this Jesus standard different from that of the world? Well, first of all, to think and behave toward being like the greatest as the world teaches only leads to the world that we know of today, which is full of contention, competition, infighting, jealousy, strife. We commonly see these things as the propeller, as the accelerator in our race to the top. They become the primary motivation. It's a world of sabotage, of schemes and plans to undermine and bring down others, to lie and to hoard resources, to get there first, to think of the world as a place of fixed pie, where if you don't get the pie first, others will. It's everything that is against what Jesus taught about humility, submission to the Father's will, having a spiritually learning mindset which requires having a clean heart that is sensitive to the Lord's guidance. The world says the greatest in the world are the most powerful, most attractive, talented, effective in leadership, successful in the ways of making money and getting things done, navigating through the worlds of clever people and the pathways to success. And then there's pedigrees and resumes that you show to show and prove that you are that kind of person. But that's not what the Lord looks at, nor he desires. So in what ways do you struggle with humility and accepting a lowly position? Why is it so hard for us? In what ways do we struggle with developing a humble heart toward God and the spiritually mature being the spiritually mature people God wants us to be? <clears throat> well, for some of us, our inability to be humble and open to God's uh, will is a sign that we've never really practiced submitting ourselves to God entirely and placing and practicing placing our trust in Him as we ought to. We fear so much, too much actually, we routinely do things about our lives, our relationship, our jobs, and worrying about our future along the ways in which we've been taught by the world. We never practice learning to pull full trust in God to see what God will provide in His special way for us to meet our needs. And so because we are Lacking that training, we don't believe into that training and that living into that life. Much of this for men are, are, are especially difficult because we've kind of been self-reliant most of our lives, providing for our own needs. 
And also, we fear being overlooked. We fear being underestimated and perceived of as weak and ineffectual, without drive or passion or virility, and without the strength of body and mind to push and push into the enemies of our ideas and our plans. You know, everybody, among the males, the men, you know, they're aspiring to be the alpha male. They want to be the tough and charismatic male that everybody, all the other men look up to. And this way of thinking inevitably, inevitably makes people, other people, obstacles and enemies in life's competition. Uh, we, they don't want to be, men don't want to be pawns to other people's control. They want to be the leader and commander to their self-centered goals. And Jesus tells us this is diametrically opposed to how he would have us understand our position and relationship to God and to others. So how can we live differently? Well, Romans 15.1.2 says, We who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. So what lost people, wandering sheep, so to speak, has God put in your life to demonstrate Jesus' heart of love and concern for their souls, their lost souls? How might you start to show concern for them? Might it be through perhaps something as simple as regular prayer? Or maybe reaching out with a friendliness, a, a, a friendly touch, an assisting, a spirit of assisting and helping and bringing something to help or to share a smile? How can it start for you? It can start easy if you make it a habit, something routine, something small that you can do. And then maybe you can start sewing and then starting to learn and discover that the attitude and the change in your heart starts always with something small and doable. In Luke 1, 79, Jesus shows us that we are benefactors of this life change that is only possible through Christ Jesus. He shows us, it tells us that the tender mercy of our God, by which the dawn will visit us from on high, who is Christ, he will shine on those of us who live in darkness and in the shadow of death. He guides our feet into the path of peace, and so he calls us to be like himself. How does Jesus explain the seriousness of causing one of his little ones to stumble? What happens when our pride and ego gets in the way and we don't take on the humble attitude of Christ? We can easily fall into a careless and callous attitude about the effect and influence we have on other people and the ways we, in which we create situations to cause others to fall into sin. We might be totally ignorant of it, not caring about it, totally unconscious to it, but those of us in Christ are very self-aware of what we are doing because we are making every effort for our lives to count for Christ. When a community and body of believers are living in and pressing into humility and to service for one another, sometimes it can create an opportunity for uh, evil-hearted or evil-minded uh, people to come in and break that peace. Imagine living like that in a community of believers with humility of heart, everyone seeking to be humble, humbling themselves in service to one another and each one submitting themselves in trust to the body of believers. And some proud and self-serving individual comes in to take advantage of them. That person is under serious judgment, according to this passage. 
Jesus says in verse 6, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung about his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus really does care for his own and those who come in to spy out and like wolves seek who it might devour. So what drastic action did Jesus suggest in avoiding personal sin if you are among those? Flagrantly going about in the body of Christ to take advantage of people. Well, he says, in fact, a person who is going around using his mind to take advantage of the vulnerability of other, other believers, laying traps and causing them to enter into sin, is in a serious position. Jesus advises a serious, unthinkable remedy for such a person to drive home the gravity of the situation that person is in, that he has allowed himself to be in. When a person allows themselves to be an instrument and channel for sin in other people's lives, he says, woe to the man through whom sin comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter into life maim or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than two and be thrown into the fire of hell. So he uses this hyperbole and exaggeration to show and to get across the message. This is serious stuff when we start to manipulate and to take advantage of our brothers and sisters who are endeavoring to live out their lives in Christ faithfully. The We all live in circles of relationship with others. From the very personal and intimate to those who are merely acquaintances and share minor touch points. But within our individual lives, we have people who orbit around us, either receiving our rays of light and goodness and blessing from God, or receiving dark and evil influences through us to bring them down, to pollute their hearts and souls and to destroy their souls through our craven worldly lusts. Jesus cares about the in evil influences that are coming against his own people. He tells us how grave is the sin that causes his own children to fall into sin. We tend to grade sinful actions into degrees of severity. And we sometimes, most, in most cases, underestimate our impact on others and the ways in which the small sins in our lives may actually pose in small incremental fashion uh, temptation points and trials and uh, sinful lures for others that we relate to. We must be more self-aware. In a humble attitude toward others, thinking very carefully about the impact that we have in the body of Christ. So the Father cares deeply about rescuing the lost, the one who has fallen away, and looks diligently to return them to himself. In the next section, we see that Jesus lists a process for um, us in dealing with sin in the church. A lack of humility first can result in damaging argument and struggle with others. Jesus teaches that such a person should be confronted and addressed privately. And if that person doesn't listen, to be addressed in the presence of one or two others. If that person continues to live in pride and willful uh, ignorance of their part in sin or harm, then we are told that it needs to be brought before the church. If he or she refuses to listen to the determination of the larger church body, then he should be severed from any relationship with the church. Because that is an indication of willful defiance against the greater body of the church. 
If he refuses to listen to the determination of the church, then he should be severed from the relationship with the body. Willful sin and rejection of larger church agreement on sin must be taken with humility, seeking if possible, the church seeking if possible to restore the brother, and also to showing with the clear consequences of willful rejection of any and all opportunities to repent and to seek healing and restoration. So this practice uh, described here by Jesus is one of the many ways Jesus teaches us about the unique community and body of Christ in order for us to grow and to become strong in the Spirit of the Lord. Society advances by the collective work of its various communities and the ways in which it organizes itself for the work that they do. A community is defined by its beliefs and values and the ways it works to identify its highest and best goals and works toward those goals and needs in a concerted way. The community under our Lord Jesus Christ always seeks to create an environment where the individual can recognize the sovereignty and authority of God and submit himself or herself to God's spiritual open and active working of transformation as a follower of Christ, which we call sanctification. So when individual transformation happens, it will guide you closer to the body of believers Christ loves and cherishes. It just automatically does that. You can't, you can't go to church and study under scriptures and be separated or to be repugnant against the body of Christ. You, you would draw closer to and actively engaging in the love relationships in the body of, of the church. And so you would put your heart in, in a position to... Um, desire to serve others and to commit to and edify that body in the spirit of bringing the peace of Jesus to each person that you have access of ministry, a point of ministry. So it's always a, of a different spirit if someone comes in without that intention of building and adding to the abundance of grace and peace, but with instead an intent to unjustly, without scriptural support, bring confusion and disruption into the church body. So when a church decides to institute a judicial body of elders or deacons or leaders in the church to handle uh, disputes, in this context, it does not only reaffirm the principles of doctrine that the church is learning and believing, but they are in a position to apply them on a daily basis, day-to-day -day matters of the believers' lives in their interaction with others giving opportunity for brethren to be restored, to acknowledge and confess their sins, and then perhaps even to share their stories and testimonies as a living example of how the Spirit is working and working through processes to transform their hearts and their attitudes so that the entire church can learn from such cases and rejoice together. That is an intent. I just have a next uh, slide here uh, of an example, a proposal of how this could actually work to imp implement uh, church conflict uh, processes, resolution processes. And it, it talks about how you create a space for negotiation, for reconciling, and to develop relationships. Then there's a uh, process to facilitate exploration and understanding using doctrine and reframing the issues and drawing out uh, the, the stakeholders and their interests and what values they're seeing the problems through, what classes they're understanding, and then exploring history of other previous cases and de, um, uh, 
complexifying or simplifying basically to uh, bring into better focus what the problems are at, at their root and then generating and evaluating multiple options and lastly to discern and to decide um, so it's a great uh, process to be thinking about that we largely do not have in the church but would make a huge blessing if we thought carefully through how this could play a role not only within the church but as a witness to the greater community around us Interestingly, uh, today, when we look at the admonition Jesus gives to us, most churches do not put into active practice the responsibility of going through this process. In many cases, we either shirk this responsibility onto paid staff like the pastor, who himself finds himself overloaded with all the diversity of different job responsibilities that he has to single-handedly uh, shoulder upon himself, and he is least trained to do. And what is most uh, disconcerting here is that because the larger church becomes unpracticed in identifying and discussing and pointing out sin, uh, everything becomes two-dimensional in the things that they're learning from Scripture because they're not plowing into and, and discovering and discussing actively from their own lives how they can be either stronger against sinful temptation and uh, conflict and controversy in the church and practicing through instances of sin uh, the uh, important responsibility of conflict resolution, adjudication, and uh, dispute resolution within their body. See, if you, if the whole learning process is critical here, if we leave too much unresolved and the church body themselves don't get involved, uh, the discussions never evolve into a higher form of understanding involving what is right, what is just, and what is sin. Uh, I know many people in the church who are still mystified by what sin is because we're not thinking properly about what God says sin is and what sin does. We leave far too much in the church to the secular processes through the courts uh, to resolve our, our issues. When it, it has been given specifically to us, it has been given to us to study, to train, and to pre prepare to weigh uh, issues of sin and justice under God's holy counsel in all matters of human conflict so that the church becomes a beacon and holy example of conflict res resolution and dispute arbitration in the world. Can you imagine if we did this right, what an example and a testimony of faithfulness and justice the church could be in society where even non-believers would come to the church to uh, gain wisdom and understanding into their own problems and uh, find resolution through uh, wise and, and um, faithful believers who have deep understanding into the issues and how they can be resolved. If the church did not put this into practice, imagine all the expertise, if we did put it into practice, all the expertise and training the church would gain in wisdom, understanding in the law, arbitration, governance, and justice. Is this not one of the reasons why the world holds the church with so little respect? Perhaps God wanted us to do this so that we could be in a better position to think about how we relate to one another in the kingdom of God. Since we have reneged our responsibilities, how much learning we're missing out on that the Holy Spirit desires to teach us through this process. Because we are so lazy in our responsibility to one another in the church. We're insisting on living this bare minimum involvement in the Sabbath. 
but we care so little for one another in the body of Christ. This is a very huge indictment on the way in which we practice and live into church. So the principle number one I wanted to share is that every opportunity to serve God through the church is preparation for spiritual greatness and spiritual development. When is the last time you considered an invitation or opportunity to serve God's people? When is the last time you've seen that opportunity as burdensome and inconvenient? How do you think the priorities you've set today in the way you spend your time in life will be measured by God when it comes to the kingdom of God? The people of this world are far more ambitious for learning and growing into their expertise than the people of God into the expertise they need to be a people of God, not only in this world, but into the kingdom to come. Your commitment might start small, but think of the ways you might extend yourself into offering up yourselves as a living sacrifice in the service of the church, in your church congregation that Jesus loves and has called us to shepherd. So why do you find these instructions so challenging? Well, the church currently does not have any of the organizational divisions and training to create a body of discerning elders who can oversee such matters in the body of Christ. Some like the Brethren community and the Amish, I have noticed uh, through some documentaries, they do put this into practice. And they have elders and older people uh, sitting in on important positions of counseling and guiding and, and helping adjudicate difficult relationship problems. And they do it in a way as to be fair and impartial and in a way is to teach the younger people how to identify sin and to avoid it so that they are responsible and accountable to one another. And that is a beautiful practice we don't find largely in most churches today. An important addition point to, additional point to point out here and to, for us to reflect on is once we become more aware and familiar with the various and different ways for us to resolve conflict and controversy in the church, we can be more biblical about the ways we identify. And the scripture says, bind those evil behaviors that have no place in the body of Christ, which are sinful, and loosen those behaviors which lead to life and fruitfulness and the glory of God in the heavenly realities. So we're learning about these because they affect greater consequences in the spiritual world now and in the world to come as Jesus has taught us in this chapter. Learning about other sins can be a warning and they can also be a blessing in the ways in which we can grow in positive ways and also identify ways and pathways we ought not to be uh, tempted into going ourselves. When we rightly and justly adjudicate matters of sin in the church, we are not only presenting a teaching moment about sin to our congregations, but given giving people an opportunity to reflect on his or her own attitude towards sin. If they are willfully embracing sin, the church has, by way of counsel and guidance, the responsibility to, as this chapter calls it, bind the person up and uh, kind of uh, relinquish them in the willfulness in which they're bound to that sin because they refuse to let it go and to recognize the love of their sin. If that person repents and seek resolution, the church has the power to enable that person to be restored, but then also share in the way in which they've been wrestling with that sin in a way as to provide advice, counsel, and healing to other people 
uh, wrestling with the same sins, thereby providing an opportunity for that temptation to be turned around for good to the larger body of Christ in opportunities of healing and overcoming sin in the larger body of Christ. In this way, the church becomes a hospital of sorts for the soul and the spirit, providing spiritual diagnosis and remedies for spiritual health. It is a matter of expertise and authority that for this very thing that the church has called us, but we are ignoring regrettably today. Forgiveness. Why is forgiveness so critical to God's people on earth? Because the lack of forgiveness, which is the harboring of bitterness, holding grudges, harboring hateful, angry thoughts against someone we believe has violated us, is always presenting an open door for Satan and evil spirits to plant other wicked seeds into our, our hearts. It replaces your joy and peace in Christ with suspicion, resentment, and disowning, a spirit of disowning the body of Christ. Evil and impure spirits are always looking for a way in to create havoc and unrest and bring down the church. Unforgiveness is one of those gaping holes when left unchecked can put a cancer into not only your faith, but into the faith of others. So why? And how does this happen? Well, because an unforgiving heart is always brewing with thoughts of why these things are happening to them. Brewing thoughts begin with, why did that person do that to me? Why did they say that about me? Am I a person that looks so weak and easy to disrespect that they would come against me like that? Why do they walk around church with that attitude and think everything is okay? Why are they spreading those rumors about me that are false and lies? I hate seeing that person at church. How can they claim to be a believer and behave like that? And so on. You know those thoughts. You may have experienced this line of thinking and heart pain yourself or have seen it in people that you know and know where this goes. Eventually, it results in the believers disengaging, running away from, and growing sense of self-doubt about one's holy calling as a minister of Christ in the body of the church, but also developing within that heart, uh, their heart an irre irrecoverable disdain, uh, kind of a, a repulsion for the fellowship that they had once enjoyed with other believers to the point where they hate going to church, to the point where they feel intense distrust with even the believers that they had once loved. The scriptures warns us against this, repeatedly teaching us that forgiveness and conflict, conflict resolution in Christ is a very vital process to the health of the believer's faith and the growing church body. Can you imagine what would happen if another believer acknowledged your pain and even thought uh, they might not fully understand the situation, but approached one another asking a hurt believer for forgiveness and to help them identify what they might have been doing wrong to give off an ungracious attitude in the body of Christ? How that repentant attitude could lend into healing and blessing and reassurance and a covering over of grace into their lives as well in return. This attitude not only imbues the body with a degree of spiritual maturity and boldness with talking about interpersonal issues that are often too um, easily ignored and overlooked in our churches to its own detriment, but it relieves the individual from feeling like uh, like they've been distanced or uh, ostracized or they're being uh, looked upon as a troublemaker in the church. 
when those things are brought into the open and when we obey Jesus' teaching, our church body brings honor and glory to Jesus and reiterates for ourselves the primacy of the Holy Spirit's powerful work in our lives to change us. I looked up forgiveness on just um, uh, on a search on the internet, and these words came up that I thought would be in interesting to share, uh, to reflect on. Forgiveness doesn't excuse others' behavior. Forgiveness prevents their behavior from destroying our hearts. Another says, forgiveness give that you give another is a chance for them to start to have a new beginning. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in God forgave you. And in Ephesians 1.7 and 8, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And that's exactly what's happening when we institute this kind of process and procedure in the church. And lastly, Forgiveness means choosing to let go of anger and resentment toward yourself or someone else, to surrender thoughts of revenge, and to move forward with your personal power to bless and to encourage and conduct the ministry that God has empowered you to do intact, right? To preserve that, that, go that mission that has been specially given to you. So let us be more cognizant of the powerful ways in which God in Christ has called us to learn and grow and use our understanding of spiritual truths of our hearts to greater uh, blessing to the people of God and to a powerful witness that the world needs to see. Let's pray. Father, we have not followed your will. We have far underestimated, Father, what the church can be, and we have put in so little to what we ought to do and be in the larger body of Christ. Help us awaken the church and help us to take up our responsibilities to be accountable to one another, to confront sin, to see how we can be wise counsels for the brothers in the ways to provide forgiveness and restoration and healing, but also, Lord, to grow into our knowledge of what is good and what is evil, and to choose to love the things which are beautiful and right and pure and holy in thy sight. Thank you, Father. We lift you up and we praise you for your wisdom and all that you're trying to teach us, Lord. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.